0: Hi, this is Dan Kilbride. I'm the host of New Books in American Studies and a professor of history at John Carroll University outside of Cleveland, Ohio. We're joined today by Glenn Cruthers. He's a professor of history at the University of Louisville. And Glenn, what is your position at the Philson Club again?
1: I'm Director of Research at the Philson. Uh, I Hi,
0: this is Dan Kilbride. I'm the host of New Books in American Studies and a professor of history at John Carroll University outside of Cleveland, Ohio. We're joined today by Glenn Crothers. He's a professor of history at the University of Louisville. And Glenn, what is your position at the Filson Club again?
1: I'm director of research at the Filson. Uh, I co-edit our journal, Ohio Valley History. I run our academic programs and I run our grants program at the Filson.
0: All right. Well, Glenn is a busy guy, and somehow he managed to publish this book we're going to discuss today. It's called Quakers Living in the Lion's Mouth, the Society of Friends in Northern Virginia, 1730 to 1865. It was published by the University of Press of Florida in 2012. So Quakers were you know, the first organized religious group to come out against slavery. Uh, Quakers were also a literate uh, mercantile bunch. Uh, They tended to write a lot and they tended to keep what they wrote. Uh, And their stuff is sprinkled through lots of colleges and universities, particularly in Pennsylvania. So how did Quakers cope with slavery when they lived in the midst of it? That's really the subject of this book. And how did they cope with their neighbors and how did their slave-owning neighbors cope with them? when slavery and its expansion became an explosive political issue in the 1840s. So those questions and more are the subject of Glenn Crothers' book. So Glenn, welcome to New Books in American Studies. Thanks for having me. And uh, so tell us about yourself and your path to this book.
1: Well, my path was pretty circuitous. Um, I am not a Quaker and uh, I'm the son of uh, Presbyterian immigrants to Canada. Uh, Irish Presbyterian immigrants to Canada, Um, and I came down, I came interested in American history uh, in my undergraduate, and I came down to the University of Florida and started studying uh, the American Revolution, particularly interested in social and economic change in the wake of the American Revolution. And in the course of that research, um, I did things like uh, uh, documenting all the investors in a variety of internal improvement companies. And what I found was that about 90% of those investors, the vast majority, in fact, were slaveholders. Many of the in shares for these companies were expensive and uh, average folks couldn't purchase them. But about 10% of the Potomac River Company, the Little River Turnpike Company, were non slaveholders. This raised a question for me who were these folks who were wealthy enough to invest in these companies in a slaveholding society but weren't slaveholders? I sort of shoved it to the side and finished my dissertation and went out and got a job. About 1998, I was working in the Virginia Historical Society and I came across, I was looking through the records of the Alexandria Marine Insurance Company, uh, nobody yawned yet, um, <laughs> and I came across policy number 2157, uh, which was a policy ensuring 30 slaves valued at $9,000 traveling on the vessel Dorchester from Alexandria, then in the District of Columbia, to New Orleans. Um, uh, This was uh, 1809, so after the Louisiana Purchase, but before Jefferson's embargo. Um, Interesting enough, in and of itself, but on the reverse, I flipped over the policy, and it was signed by the president of the company, a man named William Hartshorn. Turns out William Hartshorn was a Quaker. Turns out William Hartshorne had been head uh, president of the anti-slavery society in Virginia, or in <laughs> Alexandria. Uh, so this immediately raised the question, who is this guy? Um, how can this anti-slavery Quaker also be the president of an insurance company that's insuring slave- a slave ship, transporting slaves to New Orleans? So that became the germ of an article that I published in the Journal of the Early Republic in 2005, but I quickly found that there was much more going on here. That I could look at the careers of many of the Quakers who had settled in Virginia, and I found out that those ten percent or so of people who invested in the those various improvement insure, marine insurance, the various improvement companies were in fact also Quakers. So I had this coterie of wealthy Quakers deeply involved in a slave economy, but also anti-slavery, and that really was the germ. Looking at this sort of issue of William Hartshorn and how he balanced his ethical commitments with his economic involvement. But I found this was a broader issue for the entire Quaker community in uh, Northern Virginia. Um, And that became the germ of the book. Um, So that's where it began.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, it's funny how uh First books tend to lead to second and third books. Uh, it happens to almost everybody I've interviewed, and it happened to me as well. So
1: yeah, it's 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 just in the course of the research. And for me, the problem, the you know, the historical, uh, the issues of in, his, in history that I've always been interested, in, where I find contradictions, and this one was glaring. <laughs> uh, how do I uh, make sense of this individual? How do I make sense then more broadly of the community of which he was a part?
0: So why don't you just tell us? What are these nice people doing in Northern Virginia at all? You know, how did they get there?
1: Well, they start arriving in the 1730s and they arrive essentially because land in Eastern Pennsylvania, where they had settled by the 1730s is getting expensive land in contrast in Northern Virginia. Uh, that is the counties of uh, Fairfax, Loudon, Prince William, along the boundary of along the Southern shore of the Potomac River. And the northern counties of the Shenandoah Valley, uh, now West Virginia, uh, Jefferson County uh, in particular, and Berkeley County now in West Virginia, but also uh, Frederick County in Virginia. So those six or so counties is where they primarily settled. Um, the land there is free essentially if you can uh, start developing it um, and uh, except for a small uh, uh, rent that they must pay to the uh, Fairfax proprietary. And in the 1730s, Quakers are not anti-slavery. They haven't yet embraced Mm -hmm. anti-slavery. So moving to a slave society is not that much of a a shift for them. Uh, And essentially, they're settling unsettled land. I mean, there was an Indian population, Native American population in the Shenandoah Valley at some point in the near past, but they weren't there by the 1730s. Um, So this was essentially vacant land or largely vacant land, Um, cheap land, Uh, valuable land. So this is what brings them there in the first place. Um, Significant numbers settle uh, very quickly. Uh, uh, There are about 2,000 to 3,000 Quakers in those six counties uh, by the time of the revolution. Um, uh, And it's only at that time, of course, when the Quaker differences become uh, important uh, to their continued existence within Virginia. Uh, It's at the time of the revolution, a time of war, Um, when the pacifist Quaker ideals become an issue. It is also during the 1770s, of course, when Quakers embrace anti-slavery and begin rejecting slave ownership among themselves. And then in the 1780s, moving out into the broader society and trying to end slavery more broadly. So their initial settlement in Virginia doesn't present for them much in the way of a conflict, no more a conflict than it did if they had settled in New York or they had settled in some other colony other than Pennsylvania. Um, it's only as time progresses that they become that Northern Virginia becomes, in effect, a lion's mouth for them.
0: Mm-hmm. I think if if anybody's listened has read the autobiography of Ola Olaude Equiano, at one point he is owned by a Quaker. Right. Uh, you know, in in his life, didn't doesn't last very long, but he is. So, uh, you know, one of the things that you describe in your book is the is the dilemma that Quakers faced during the American Revolution. Uh, you know, Because of their pacifism, particularly, uh, Quakers had a pretty tough time of it during the revolution. So how did the American Revolution change the Society of Friends, especially their understanding of their moral role in the new nation?
1: Well, the changes that are taking place within Quakerism, especially the embrace of anti-slavery, is something that predates the revolution itself. Uh, During the French and Indian War, the Seven Years' War, um, uh, Pennsylvania Quakers um, are placed in a real dilemma. They are basically running the colony, but they're asked Mm -hmm. to raise money to support the war effort against the French and the Native Americans that the British are fighting, the English are fighting. Um, uh, In response, Quakers begin to leave government and uh, the Pennsylvania uh, colonial government. Large numbers of them do. Uh, and they believe that this dilemma they've been faced is essentially a message uh, from a divine message that they have been living a sinful life and they need to reform the sect. They need to be they need to purify the sect. So they begin to uh, enforce their own disciplinary rules more strictly, uh, that is rules against marrying marrying out of a sect, rules against drinking. Uh, rules that regulate dress. Um, And they also begin to question things like the ownership of slavery, of the ownership of slaves. Uh, So in this 1750s, 1760s, you start to see this reform effort, the reformation of American Quakerism, uh, uh, taking place in Pennsylvania. It soon spreads because of the meeting structure of Quakers. It uh, soon spreads throughout all the meetings uh, in um, uh, North America. Now at this point, Virginia Friends, the Northern Virginia Friends, are part of the Pennsylvania Yearly Meeting, uh, the Philadelphia Yearly Meeting, more accurately. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result, this impacts them almost directly, uh, or, or very directly. Uh, after 1780, the local, friend, the Northern Virginia Friends will become part of the Baltimore Yearly Meeting, but the same shifts are going on, this attempt to reform the society. Um, that Reformation has two impacts. One, it lessens the number of Friends, Um uh, <laughs> uh, in the in the in the colonies, the from a highly a, from a large uh, religious body, the number of friends declines rapidly um, because many people just can't live up to these disciplinary standards. Many people have married outside mm-hmm. the Quaker faith. Many people like a drink or two, um, uh, and a variety of other disciplinary issues lead them to leave leave the sect. Slavery has the same impact. Uh, many. Quakers who were committed to slave ownership, particularly in a place like Virginia, are unwilling to give up their slaves and they are disowned by the meetings, uh, the local meetings, and they leave Quakers. that's the one impact. You get a smaller but much more intensely committed group of friends, um, uh, both in Pennsylvania and in northern Virginia. The other impact, and it plays its biggest role in a place like um, uh, Virginia. But the same thing's going on in Pennsylvania where Quakers are arrested as well. The new commitment to Quaker discipline, the new commitment to Quaker ethics, particularly pacifism, means that friends are much stricter in their behavior. They're much more willing, as a result, to violate, to object to uh, the the colonial governments and the British governments and later the American governments' uh, stipulations to fight. uh, and pacifism becomes not simply joining the battle, it becomes not taking sides, uh, mm. not in any way uh, uh, indicating a favorite on this. And for many American revolutionaries, this unwillingness of friends to take a side at all, not simply not fighting, which, you know, there were many revolutionaries uh, who could have lived, I think, with that, but the unwillingness to take a side. Um, uh, led many people to con- con- uh, conclude, Tom Paine most famously in Common Sense, that uh, Friends were in fact closet loyalists. Um, and so initially in Virginia, uh, Friends are looked on very favorably because um, uh, before the fighting begins, uh, Friends actually give support to uh, refugees from Boston, for example. Um, and so there are very positive responses. And the London Yearly Meeting, uh, is basically pro, uh, 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 basically opposes British policy in the 1760s and early 1770s. And so there's positive responses to this in the Virginia newspapers, uh, the Virginia Gazette, uh, in the 1760s and 1770s. But once the fighting begins, and once Quakers are absolutely unwilling to get involved, at one point many friends refuse to use continental currency. Uh, mm. When they start making decisions like this, now they start to face uh, hostility and ultimately repression. Um, uh, Quaker property uh, is taken from them, uh, something like 2,700 pounds sterling total from the small population of friends in northern Virginia. Um, uh, many are arrested. Um, uh, a couple die in, in uh, uh, being held by uh, a, a revolutionary uh, Virginia government In Virginia government jails. Um, So this is a, a, this is a a, Quakers face great hostility during this period. Uh, And it also is a trial for Quakers themselves because many young Quaker men actually supported the revolution. Uh, And so what you have is this external pressure on friends, but at the same time, internal turmoil as, you know, Quaker leaders, weighty friends within the meetings are calling on their, their, their members to, Uh, In no way two sides, but in fact, many friends on the ground, William Hartshorne being one of them, in fact, um, uh, are openly supportive of the revolutionary cause, even if they are not fighting. And a number are disowned for this during the course of the revolution. Mm -hmm. And this is the constant tension within friends. You know, you have these external pressures, but you also have these internal attempts to regulate behavior. And that leads to internal dissension often. Mm -hmm. So that's, the revolution is the first time that this comes to the fore. And when Quakers embrace anti-slavery strongly during the revolution, um, and it is in the 1770s where Virginia friends reject slavery and begin to tempt freeing their slaves, they can't by Virginia law at the time, Um, uh, now it looks like friends are fellow travelers to the British. In 1775, Lord Dunmore, the uh, last royal governor of Virginia, had issued his proclamation saying that any slaves who joined with the British army were free. At the same time or in the same years, you have Quakers attempting to free their slaves. To many Virginians, to many slaveholding Virginians, Quakers look like fellow travelers. They look like, uh, in their uh, support for anti-slavery and their attempt to free their slaves, they are not only undermining the social structure of Virginia, the racial hierarchy of Virginia, they are also uh, aiding and abetting the British cause. So all of these things come together, um, uh, both the pacifism, the anti-slavery, and the sympathy within the group of many younger friends for the revolution uh, create uh, a period of, of great tension and great uh, uh, turmoil within Quakerism. Um, and again, a decline in numbers as a result. Uh, many friends leave the faith um, uh because they support the American Revolution. And in fact, in Ver- Pennsylvania, this is not how, in Virginia, you actually have a group um, of Quakers who uh, reject pacifism and uh, uh, support the revolutionary cause. All disowned, of course, so they're not <laughs> officially Quakers. Um, but this reflects the tension that's going on within the group as a result of the kind of attempt to impose these very strict, successful attempt to impose these very strict disciplinary standards and ethical standards upon friends.
0: Well, despite the problems they had during the revolution, um, as you describe in your book, Quakers as a group were pretty successful uh, after the American Revolution, the post-revolutionary decades. Um, How did Quakers, especially these newly strict Quakers, how did they cope with the consequences of their success, yet that success came uh, in the midst of living in a slaveholding society. So there were inevitably tensions that they had to negotiate as successful, you know, mercantile people living in a slaveholding society. So, why were Quakers so successful and what were some of the consequences of that success?
1: Well, well I think the reasons for Quaker success I mean, one of the things that comes out of the revolution, uh, yes, this is a moment of turmoil for the sect. But when they leave, the, when the revolution ends, what you have is a small group of committed Quakers. So this is a group that's deeply committed to its spiritual and ethical uh, beliefs. Um, uh, small, um, but again, strong, I think. And one of the reasons they are so successful financially, economically, is that along with those spiritual ties, there are strong family. This is a group that marries within the group. Uh, you mm-hmm. can only marry a fellow Quaker. This makes for very strong familial bonds um and economic bonds so a lot of the work a lot of the trade that quakers conduct a lot of the loans that they receive are from within the group if you're a young quaker uh man you want to set up a business in alexandria you turn to established friends if they think well of your character and generally speaking they wouldn't have asked for the money unless they were thought well of Um, You were going to get a loan. You were going to get aid. You were were going to be trained within one of those established Quaker merchants. This is a group that helps its own very much. Um, So I think that's one of the key reasons why there's economic success. They trade within the group. They uh, help each other within the group um, and they regulate their own disputes within the group. So Mm -hmm. that just simply that sort of support network helps to explain part of their success. I think the other issue here is that friends are known more broadly in society, even if disliked for their anti-slavery position, uh, even if suspect is suspect because of that and suspect because of their pacifism, (laughs) even a suspect because of their odd dress and odd speech. This is a group that dresses differently and has odd speech patterns uh, reflecting their ethical commitments. Despite all that, they also have a reputation for honesty. Then if you go to a Quaker businessman, you are going to get a fair deal. You're going to get a high-quality product, and you're going to get it at a reasonable price. Um, This becomes one of the things I was struck by is very rapidly after the end of the Revolution, by the mid-1780s, certainly by the early 1790s, Quaker merchants are reported upon in the local press, the Alexandria Gazette, the Virginia newspapers, Baltimore newspapers, Philadelphia newspapers, certainly, in positive ways. There's still negative accounts, obviously, um, but there are many positive accounts of Quakers' uh, unwillingness uh, to go into debt, for example. Quakers' uh, fair dealing is praised broadly within society. Um, and that reputation of fair dealing, I think, is something that you know, becomes broad spread in American society, in the new American Republic, and people are willing to do business with Quakers happily. Um, it helps that they are also deeply industrious. Quakers make no real distinction, I think, between the secular and the spiritual worlds, and part of being a good Quaker is following your calling. Uh, uh, following your calling, whatever that is. that could be being a preacher. Uh, uh, That could be being an educator, that could also be being a businessman. Uh, You were serving God's will if you followed your work as a businessman, as a merchant, as a miller, uh, to the best of your ability. Uh, That meant the Quakers worked hard, uh, generally speaking. They certainly had a reputation for working hard. Uh, So I think this is a group that's deeply committed to success because that's a sign of God's favor. Uh, deeply committed to success because that is their spiritual uh, uh, or at least deeply committed to working hard because that's a spiritual imperative Uh, but that develops this broader reputation in society and so people turn to friends uh, uh, happily to do business with them and I've got you know number of slaveholders uh, George Washington most famously uh, uh, recommends to one of his fellows fellow slaveholders he actually recommends doing business with William Harshorn Uh, That this is a man you can trust, that you'll get a good price from William Hardshaw. Um, uh, At the same time, Quakers are deeply civic-minded. They become involved, heavily involved, given their numbers, uh, in various attempts to improve society. Uh, That can be economic improvement. Those 10% of the investors in the Potomac River Company who are friends, that's an important group in sustaining uh, the Potomac River Company. They become involved in the Little River Turnpike Company and, in fact, are president and directors of, the company, of that company. They are uh, heavily involved in the first bank in Alexandria. The Bank of Alexandria turns out to have a significant number of Quaker investors as the second bank, the Bank of Potomac in Alexandria. So this is a group that's deeply involved in the economy and improving the economy and many slaveholders certainly many leaders uh civic and economic leaders in northern virginia see the friends as a positive group within society a group that is contributing in positive ways to the economy and to the society beyond that they're also involved in education they start schools uh uh, uh they are uh, happy to promote uh in various ways things that large numbers of Virginians in the post-revolutionary period see as positive. So they develop a very positive reputation and they become quite successful economically
0: as a result. Well, how do Quakers themselves, uh, and maybe this isn't a problem for them, but how do they reconcile, uh, you know, doing business with slave owners, which you could argue is, you know, helping support the institution? Is, Is that a moral problem for them? For some friends, yes,
1: uh, for many friends, in fact. And one of the things that comes as, in the wake of the revolution and in the wake of the embrace of anti-slavery is that a significant number of friends leave Virginia. The Quaker migration uh, begins in the 1780s, uh, movement up to Pennsylvania, and then after uh, Ohio becomes available for settlement, uh, into Ohio and Indiana in the Midwest. So there's this significant Quaker migration so much so that by 18, 1860, it's hard to get hard numbers on the Quaker population. But if there are around uh, as many as 4,000 Quakers at its peak in the 1780s, there are 1,000 Quakers in 1860 in these same six counties. Um, uh, so significant numbers, friends, are leaving because of the taint of slavery. Um, they, words that they would have used. Um, uh, slavery, they believe, uh, hurts the economy. Slave labor is not as productive as free labor, but it also taints them morally. The issue for many of the friends who stayed was by leaving, you're not in any way ending slavery in Virginia. Mm -hmm. So many friends who stayed said, yes, there's a problem here. I've got to stay as clear as possible of slavery, and some embrace free produce. It's a difficult proposition to do in Virginia. The beginning of the 1820s (laughs) – Sorry. Yeah, it sure is. Yeah. Um, uh, so in the beginning of the 1820s and 1830s, some friends are attempting to embrace uh, free produce. Samuel Janney will only purchase free produce, for example, for his school. However, when he was running a cotton mill in the 1820s, it's unclear that he uh, uh, sticks, stuck with free produce. In fact, I can't <laughs> believe it was any way possible in the 1820s. Um, uh, but he only employs free black labor. Uh, Likewise, Quaker farmers only employ free black labor and you start to see free black communities developing around the Quaker communities. So that's one way in which they sort of divorce themselves uh, or attempt to divorce themselves from the slave economy. It's never entirely possible. But the friends that remain think and believe, I think, very strongly that by remaining in Virginia, by setting an example of free labor on their farms, by uh, promoting a modernized economy, Uh, By the 1840s and 1850s, they're heavily investing in railroads. Uh, They're investing in industry in the 1850s. By doing all these things and using free labor, they believe that they are promoting uh, a free labor economy within Virginia. They believe that uh, they can't proselytize. They don't proselytize. You can't convince people. You can't attempt to coerce people into accepting your beliefs. But what you can do is set an example that others can emulate. So by remaining within Virginia, they believe that they are setting an example that the slaveholding population, that the broader white population will see. Look how much better it is if you embrace free labor. Uh, Look how much more prosperous you will be if you embrace free labor. Um, And I think that is really the thrust of most Quaker activities, uh, certainly after the War of 1812, is to set an example um, uh, by remaining in the state and embracing free labor whenever possible, um, not always successfully. And Hartshorn is, of course, the primo, the, the prime example of this uh, in his uh, uh, presidency of the Alexandria Marine Insurance Company. But there's all kinds of other examples: Quaker mm-hmm. Millers uh, 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 milling wheat produced by slave labor, uh, Quaker merchants selling slave-produced produce uh, uh, in the overseas market. Um, but I think most of them would have argued uh, that, yes, this is a problem. Uh, we're trying to uh, embrace free labor as much as possible but by leaving the state. We simply give up on that black population. We simply give up on our attempts to change this society.
0: So they actually thought it would be easier to fight slavery living in Virginia you know, around the institution than it would be to go to a free area.
1: Well – Easier is the wrong word. <laughs> I don't think any of them ever thought it was easy. Um, uh, but I thought I think they believe they could have more impact. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. the issue for them, that they could actually set an example. One of the key things for Samuel Janney, who's a Quaker minister and educator, uh, Benjamin Hollowell, another Quaker uh, minister and educator, is education. They promote free education in the 1830s and 1840s, actually get a bill passed through uh, the Virginia legislature in the 1840s, essentially allowing a local option to fund public education. Um, uh, Not very successful, only about four or five counties in the state embrace it. Uh, Nonetheless, they see this as a great success because they believe if the white population had better access to education, they would understand that free labor is a superior system to slavery. It's more economically efficient, it'll lead more prosperity for the white population. All you need to do was educate people. If you left the state you couldn't educate.
0: Yeah, it just struck me as interesting cuz there's that same kind of debate within with uh, among black abolitionists, uh, you know, people like Frederick Douglass insist that it's a lot easier to fight slavery in the United States than it would be to emigrate to West Africa. So, uh, you know, it was it's it's sort of a similar argument. Right. Now, you know, the 1830s, you know, rightly or wrongly, are commonly seen as a watershed in the history of anti-slavery. And your book uh, uses 1830 as a as a dividing line as well. What was the nature of Quakers' anti-slavery efforts before 1830?
1: Well, before 1830. Um Quakers are in the lead of anti-slavery efforts in Virginia and nationally. Um, It's one of the interesting things of Quaker historiography is that you can read a lot about Quakers in the 18th century. You can read a lot about Quakers in the early 19th century. And then Quakers sort of disappear from the anti-slavery historiography. Um, They are like most abolitionists in that time period or anti-slavery folks in that time period. They are uh, gradualists. They are pro-colonization. Um, uh, they believe that uh, 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 a legal um, long-term uh, uh, effort against slavery will ultimately be successful. Um, so they embrace all the tactics of the sort of more conservative uh, uh, pre-Garrisonian uh, abolitionist movement uh, prior to 1830.
0: Um, mm-hmm. This
1: involves is establishing a series of anti-slavery societies uh, uh, in Virginia. Um, the publisher of the um, um, of a Baltimore anti-slavery society, Baltimore anti-slavery paper, um, uh, in fact, travels uh, through uh, Northern Virginia, actually travels through much of the Upper South and forms many of these anti-slavery societies. But Quakers become the Primary members. In fact, the number of these anti-slavery societies—one in Winchester, there's a couple in Loudon County. Um, Quaker members are Quakers are the, pre, uh, the, the, the primary membership. Something like two-thirds of the members of most of these societies I was able to identify as Quaker. Um, uh, they meet once a year. They publish tracts. Uh, Samuel Janney publishes a twelve-part, uh, uh, twelve articles um, in the Alexandria Gazette, um, uh, arguing against slavery pretty notable in 1827 um uh here we have you know a pro-slavery state but in 1827 this kind of conversation could take place largely because quakers were promoting this conversation uh but you didn't have the same sense of siege the same sense of threat mm-hmm, in virginia mm-hmm. in 1820s and so a conversation like this could take place um uh, so the Quakers are active in all those sorts of ways. They they start uh, – uh, one of their societies is a society uh, for the protection of people held and uh, held illegally uh, – I can't get the – I haven't got the full title here. But essentially <laughs> the help slaves illegally held in – black people illegally held in bondage. Um,
0: the, the 18th uh, and 19th century, I should add for people who don't know much about this, tend to have very long – institutional titles you know so it's yeah it's it's not a memory slip it's just impossible to keep 10 or 12 words in the in the memory
1: right and so what this is we'll we'll use the law to uh, aid african-americans who are legally free but a former slaveholder or some uh, slave uh, uh, of someone has attempted to reimpose slavery on them Uh, All of this works, you know, it seems to be developing quite well. Quakers pat themselves on the backs. They were having some success. Look, we have some slaveholders joined our society. Um, uh, We seem to be having some impact. We're having a conversation here in Virginia. And then that Turner happens um, in 1831. And that changes the environment entirely in Virginia. Uh, initially the Virginia legislature, uh, as most of the listeners probably know, debate the future of slavery in Virginia, but ultimately they come down hard on the protection of slavery. And that means stricter rules governing free blacks in the state. That means uh, tighter slave patrols. Uh, That means ultimately also cracking down on anyone who opposes slavery or attempts to weaken the institution of slavery in the state. And as a result, in the 1830s, Essentially, those Quaker anti-slavery societies die. Quakers don't abandon their anti-slavery beliefs. Um, uh, Some leave the state in response. uh, But there is no public or very little public activity against slavery. It's not until the 1840s that Quakers begin, and local Quakers in Virginia begin to revive their anti-slavery efforts. And it's a visit by Lucretia Mott to the Baltimore Yearly Meeting that inspires Samuel Janney to uh, embrace anti-slavery again. By this time, of course, Garrison is active. He active also, he begins the Liberator in 1831, uh, same year as uh, the, uh, the Southampton um, 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 Slave Revolt. Um, and that changes the complexion of things too. Quakers reject Garrison in the main because they see his approach as promoting violence. Uh, mm-hmm. they are pacifists they want to adopt uh, a method of anti-slavery that will convince others that this is the right way to go they don't want to alienate slaveholders both out of self-preservation but also because they uh fear that you antagonize slaveholders will only become more deeply committed to slavery and violence will result
0: so now so- of course garrison was a pacifist too so did they not take his pacifism seriously, or do they believe that the logical outcome of his methods would be to antagonize slave owners and thereby lead to violence?
1: The latter, absolutely. Okay, got uh, it. And that was that was the the great fear um, of the garrisonian approach among Quakers. This is not just in Virginia; Quakers throughout the nation um, uh, largely reject the garrisonian approach. The violence of the language itself to them, mm-hmm, uh, the mm-hmm. moral condemnation of slaveholders. Uh, they believed uh, would not uh, convince slaveholders that slavery was wrong and you'd have to use coercive means. That's the language they use. The garrison was adopting coercive means uh, for ending Ooh. slavery. Uh, people had to be convinced in their hearts that slavery was wrong, just as Quakers were. Um, and then slavery would end. Um, so there, so when Danny in the 1840s, uh, early 1840s, begins to revive his anti-slavery campaign, He's not only worried about the response among uh, slaveholding Virginians, he's also concerned, and for good reason, among the response among leading Quakers uh, in Virginia. Um, And the Baltimore Yearly Meeting issues a number of statements uh, condemning the Garrisonian approach and urging friends not to join Garrisonian-style anti-slavery societies. We can work against slavery within the group, essentially, is there, uh, and using our methods, our quiet uh, methods of setting an example. That's the only thing Quakers could do. Janney decides that he's going to push a little further than that. He's no Garrisonian um, in terms of his tactics, although I believe he's as egalitarian-minded as Garrison will ever be. Uh, he envisions a Virginia in which black and white live side by side in equality. Certainly his language uses that he uses that kind of language when he's speaking to his fellow Quakers. Um, uh, But his approach is different. His approach is to publish articles in uh, local newspapers of a friendly sort. The Baltimore Saturday evening visitor, the the Baltimore Saturday evening visitor, um, (laughs) the Richmond Whig uh, for a while will publish him. Um, and the Virginia Gazette will for a while publish him. And what he publishes are not anti-slavery tracts per se, but pro-free labor tracts, mm. uh, arguing for the superiority of free labor, uh, uh, pointing to places where uh, northern migrants who had begun migrating to northern Virginia in significant numbers by the 1840s had come down, used free labor to revive the local economy. Uh, most famously, uh, a New Jersey Quaker by the name of Chocolate Gillingham comes to uh the old mount vernon estate uh purchase up purchases a significant amount of land and starts essentially a free labor colony Janney begins to tout these activities in his newspaper articles again not condemning slaveholders but promoting the alternative um hmm. until 1849 when he's arrested by the local loudon county <laughs> court for promoting slavery. <laughs> um so there's limits Uh, by the 1840s in what anyone can do. And even this sort of quiet uh, uh, approach that Janney adopts and Benjamin Hollowell adopts um, becomes a dangerous thing by the 1840s, uh, late 1840s, early 1850s.
0: So I I am interested in this, uh, this debate about uh, violence uh, and uh, garrisonians. What, so what did Garrison, if you know the answer to this question, what did he think of, of Quaker anti-slavery? Did he, just think, it was kind of this milk toast, you know, bland method that wasn't going to lead anywhere. Yes, <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, uh, absolutely. Uh, Quaker uh, Garrison now Garrison uh, ends up in the Progressive Friends, which is a uh, uh, a Hicksite, uh, which is a branch group out of the Hicksite Friends, uh, probably the most liberal leaning Progressive Friends, and he actually mm-hmm. attends a Progressive meeting apparently for a while. Um, so that's where he feels comfortably spiritually. Uh, But politically, he is increasingly disenchanted with the kind of conservative approach of uh, friends. And and basically, you know, he will publish Quaker uh, language, Quaker articles in his newspaper. Um, But the Quaker tactics, he thinks, are absolutely. uh, They're they're not going to work in his mind. Um, He's particularly dismissive of free produce Uh, the attempt to only use produce uh, products uh, produced by free labor Uh, at first initially in the 1830s he actually supports it um, but he increasingly thinks that this is just an absolutely useless tactic Uh, it makes people feel good about themselves but has no impact on slavery it doesn't help the slaves in any way Uh, and so he's pretty much dismissive uh, Quaker approaches and in fact he doesn't, uh, uh, I'm not sure if in the uh, in his newspaper he ultimately embraces this position, but certainly many people associated with him begin to uh, uh, attack the Quakers as simply another Protestant sect that's supporting slaves, slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, and they put them in the same category as Northern Baptists and Northern Methodists who refused to take a stand in the 1840s against slavery. Um, um, see, see them simply as... as as guilty as those groups in
0: supporting the
1: continued existence of slavery in the United States. Right.
0: Well, I hesitate to ask this question because it gets a little technical within Quakerism, but you brought up Edward Hicks, right? Uh, Who was Edward Hicks and what was the schism that bears his name? And, you know, then briefly, what did it do to Quakers in Northern Virginia?
1: Well, uh, Edward Hicks is a painter Um, uh, Quaker minister and a painter. He's most famous for painting the Peaceful Kingdom. Um, It's his cousin, I believe. Uh, I may have the relationship wrong, Elias Hicks, who is the uh, key figure in uh, the Hicksite split, and that bears his name. Um, uh, The uh, Hicksite split is a complicated uh, uh, split. (laughs) I think it's one that's fueled in part by personality. It's fueled in part by um, uh, it, it, there may be economic issues going on here, though. I think those are minor. Um, I think the key thing for understanding it is the impact of the rise of evangelicalism on Quakerism. Um, uh, the great awakening, the second great awakening and the rise of evangelical faith, many of whom, uh, are populated by former Quakers, um, uh, has an impact on Quakerism. Um, uh, Quakers' spiritual beliefs had always uh, emphasized uh, the inward light, uh, the inner Christ, the inward Christ, that everyone has a piece of the divine within them, and that could speak to them and lead them, uh, lead to their ethical commitments. In fact, Quakers argued that their ethical commitments come from better understanding the inward light within us all. Uh, this was a progressive um, uh, uh uh, pattern it was uh, you progressively understood the inward light over time it wasn't a uh, an instant revelation as the conversion experience among evangelicals tended to be however in the 1820s as friends see the success in part of evangelical faith, as they see the power of uh, evangelical beliefs among uh protestant americans Um, It begins to influence many Quakers, and they begin to de-emphasize the inward light and pay more attention to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, and the Bible is the unerring word of God. Again, evangelical uh, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, ideals. That is the basic split. The Hicksite friends tend to emphasize throughout their history the inward light. The Orthodox friends that is the group that, that splits away, um, or they would say the Hicksites split away from them, but <laughs> um, um, uh, uh, emphasize these more evangelical beliefs. doesn't mean they abandon the inward light. It's really a matter of emphasis, but it becomes a very hostile um, uh, debate that actually leads to violence in Ohio, ironically. Um, there's actually a, a, a fist fight at the Ohio Yearly Meeting, which I just laugh every time I read about it. Um, uh, I know I shouldn't, but it just made me laugh to see Quakers um, in a fist fistfight. Um, uh, <laughs> they argued, uh, and, but what it, and then it became, so they have this theological debate, but then it comes who controls the meeting. And this is when things really got nasty. Um, if there was a majority Orthodox, the Orthodox tended to get control of the meeting. They disowned the Hicksites and the Hicksites lost all right to call themselves to have access to that meeting house. And they even mm. call themselves Quakers. Um, uh, they battled over the cemeteries. Um, <laughs> uh, it became really a very hostile, especially when the meetings were evenly divided. In Northern Virginia, um, and I think this has largely to do with the spiritual leaders of the Northern Virginia community tends to be overwhelmingly hicks. I think because the, uh, the again, the, the, the spiritual leaders, the ministers in, the, in Northern Virginia are all Hick sites um, themselves, and they have a lot of influence over the rest of the meeting. So I, I, I think the final numbers I came up with were around 10 to 15% of the, of the Northern Virginia meetings become Orthodox. And many of those meetings essentially die out as a result. So the split is not as intense within Northern Virginia, but it does divert the energies of Quakers away from Uh, anti-slavery and other ethical commitments as they concern themselves with attempting to bind this divide within Quakerism. Certainly Samuel Janney and Benjamin Hollowell work hard in the 1840s and 1850s to reach out to moderate Orthodox Quakers, um, uh, largely unsuccessfully. Um, But I think the biggest thing to understand about this in terms of Quakers' uh, survival within Northern Virginia is, one, it depletes the ranks, which is important. Uh, it means that you have fewer ministers traveling on a regular basis to sustain the spiritual community. Fewer so ministers traveling regularly to Northern Virginia to sustain the spiritual community. Um, and ultimately, it diverts energies away from the other ethical commitments that friends were known for their pacifism, right. anti slavery, et cetera.
0: Right. Well, I think there's something in the water in Ohio. You know, we've got uh, these crazy Amish. Uh, who are cutting each other's beards right now uh, and being put in prison for it, actually. So I don't know. Maybe it's all the fracking that's going on up here that is doing something to the environment. But uh, it makes religious people crazy. Uh, one of the other things that you describe, discuss in your book, is the role uh, of women in, uh, in Quaker churches in northern Virginia. As, you know, Quaker Quakerism traditionally has provided women – with a lot of opportunities that were, you know, not present in the wider society, even in other, you know, more liberal churches, how was uh, the role of women in, in, in Quakerism similar and different for women in Northern Virginia?
1: Well, uh, in many ways, the life of a Quaker woman wouldn't have looked different from a middle-class woman anywhere in uh, in the United States in the Antebellum era. Um, Barry Levy, the historian Barry Levy, has argued, in fact, that uh, Quaker domesticity is the model for middle-class domesticity in the Antebellum era. Uh, And I think there's much to be said for that argument. Um, uh, Quaker women uh, deferred to their husbands within the family group uh, uh, they happily accepted the legal inequalities of the era, um, uh, in the main, at least Northern Virginia women did. Um, certainly there were Quaker women in the North that were questioning that, but there are no active, uh, 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 feminist women in Northern Virginia that I've come across in my research. However, that said, the idea Uh, of spiritual equality was taken seriously by friends, and that meant that women had the same spiritual value as men, which meant that Quaker women had an important role, though secondary role, to play in the running of meetings. They had separate women's meetings to deal with, basically, the disownment and and discipline of women within the group. Um, They uh, were, most importantly, of course, could be ministers. Uh, now quaker ministers are unpaid uh, they are simply recognized by the group as someone who has a spiritual calling uh, but they recognized women as much as they recognized men as having this spiritual calling and some of the most important ministers in northern virginia were in fact women um, uh, and they travel broadly throughout the meetings of the united states they also uh, preach to non-quakers this was always a source of entertainment uh, in the antebellum period to see the publicity <laughs> of a woman preaching to a mixed audience. Um, they always traveled with a Quaker man or usually traveled with a Quaker man for safety, particularly in the South um, uh, and for sense of propriety. Um, uh, but nonetheless, women were speaking publicly within Quakerism uh, on spiritual matters. And ultimately, many Quaker women from the North on political matters, Lucretia Mott, of course being the most Mm -hmm. example perhaps of this um, uh, because of this belief in spiritual equality. So on one hand, Quaker women play a uh, traditional role within the Quaker family Uh, notions of domesticity of uh, Republican motherhood. uh, These kinds of issues, these kinds of concepts were certainly embraced by Quaker women. Um, On the other hand, uh, exceptional Quaker women spoke publicly Uh, unexceptional Quaker women uh, had important roles to play in running the local meetings uh, at the quarterly level, at the yearly level, and at the monthly level. That is the more local level. So Quaker women had an important uh, role to play within the the society. And as a result, they were um, – this was a group that – I mean, this, they just they did have a different uh, uh, outlook on things as a result. And I think this, plays, this becomes apparent in times of crisis. This is when you really see Quaker women sort of rising to the fore. Um, one of those moments of crisis is the ongoing results of the Hicksite split, which depletes the numbers further, which means that the economic connections between men begin to disintegrate. The connections between women, however... Remain intact. The kinds of things women were expected to do as mothers, as daughters, as aunts, Uh, Uh uh, taking care of the sick and the elderly, uh, providing food for the meetings when they met, Um, uh, uh, all of those sort of jobs, those tasks associated with domesticity become so much more important in binding the group. So that, I think that becomes – women become much more important over time in sustaining the group as its numbers decline and as the economic connections between men begin to erode because of those smaller numbers.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So Even more important yeah. though, oh, women um, uh, uh, in, in these moments of crisis come to the fore. And this becomes most apparent I think during the Civil War where you actually have women because men have largely left. Quaker men largely leave because they're fearing the Confederate draft. Northern Virginia is never wholly under Union control until very late in the war, late 1864, mm-hmm. before it comes wholly under Union control. Uh, this is part of Mosby's Confederacy. Uh, uh, the Mosby's uh, raiders are, are operating in this region until a very late date. Um, the Shenandoah Valley, of course, is fought. As, is, c- goes back and forth between Union and Confederate control throughout the war until, again, late 1864. Um, uh, as a result, the fear of the Confederate draft is always pl- in place. After being arrested a number of times, in many cases, men start just – they move north to Maryland uh, into safer climes. As a result, women are there on their own, Uh, many women running their farms on their own. Uh, uh, They become absolutely essential to sustaining the community at that point. But most notably was the case of three uh, young Quaker women, Sarah Steers and two Dutton girls. Um, uh, They begin to publish uh, the Waterford News, uh, a pro-union newspaper uh, in mid 1864 and they publish it for the duration of the war. It's a weekly, uh, it is full of all kinds of sort of the concerns of young women. Uh, it has a marriage column, which is embarrassing. <laughs> <frank>. um, <laughs> um, uh, but it also makes a number of, uh, very public and political statements in the 1864 election. For example, it comes out in strong support of Lincoln. In early 1865, as Sheridan is moving across northern Virginia, essentially following a scorched earth policy, which includes Quakers. Quakers are subject to this as well. Um, uh, The girls come out in there, the young women come out in their newspaper and support Sheridan's tactics as necessary to defeat the Confederacy. And above all, they attempt to redefine what it means to be Virginian. Uh, Virginian for them does not mean uh, slaveholding and uh, defense of the Confederacy. Instead, it means defense of the Union and free labor, and they are very vocal in these political opinions. Now, it helps that the Dutton uh, father uh, is a local merchant with ties to a Republican newspaper in Baltimore, and that's how the newspaper gets printed. But it actually gets out of national attention because a local Quaker, uh, a guy named Schooley, joins a Maryland regiment, um, he's disowned for this, but he joins the <laughs> regiment um, and then sends the newspapers uh, to Lincoln, sends two of the copies of the newspaper to Lincoln. And they end up in Lincoln. There's two copies, two issues of the Waterford News and Lincoln's papers. It's also apparently reported in the New York Tribune, um, uh, these young Quaker girls who are um, uh, publishing their pro-union newspaper. I don't think there are too many non-Quaker women which would, who would have temerity. <laughs> to publish this newspaper in this way. They had a support network uh, of the local Quaker community that helped them, of course, uh, but I think they also had a tradition of women taking, speaking publicly, of uh, taking public roles in a way that non-Quaker women didn't. And I think this is kind of the culmination in this period of Quakers, Quaker women's willingness to take on these very non-domestic roles, these very public yeah. roles.
0: You, you mentioned in your final chapter that Quakers really got it both ways during the Civil War, I and mean, they got they were targeted by you mentioned Mosby specifically, and, and and Confederate troops, and they were also targeted by federal troops. I mean, you know Federals did not recognize the, the Quakers necessarily as allies, who you know were going to be exempt from you know, the scorched earth policies you describe. How did Quakers handle the Civil War in Northern Virginia?
1: um, they are pro-union. They are overwhelmingly pro-union. There are a few, uh, Confederate Quakers, um, notable, um, in some cases because of their uh, prominence, um, but they are small numbers. Um, the Civil War is, is, is the most difficult period the Quakers face, um, in Northern Virginia. It's difficult because they face the depredations from the Confederate government, both uh, the draft, once it's instituted in 1862, um, and of course property. Regular, uh, regularly Confederate troops, Mosby among them, uh, will take Quaker property. It's particularly bad for Quakers in the Shenandoah Valley, uh, which of course is fought over very intensely throughout the, until 1864. Um, The problem for Quakers is that because they are so intensely Union, um, uh, they have trouble maintaining their pacifism. There are a number of Quakers, as Mm -hmm. I said, a small number who joined the Confederacy. There are a much larger number who joined the Union Army. Um, uh, Young Quaker men see it as their duty to defend the Union. And they've been told that slavery is a bad thing all their life, that free labor is a is 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 the appropriate economy and here's the army fighting for exactly those things certainly after the emancipation proclamation uh so this is they they join the union army in surprising numbers even if they don't join the union army there is no attempt as there was during the american revolution and the war of 1812 to be purely neutral when union troops come through they cheer them they give them food They give them aid in whatever way they can, uh, which they do not do when Confederate troops come through. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, So pure pacifism, pure neutrality is essentially abandoned by Quakers. As one Baltimore friend said in the 1870s, in the wake of all this, um, if we had attempted to discipline Quakers for breaking the pacifist vow, there would be no Quakers. (laughs) Um, uh, And that's not to say that the vast majority fought. They did not fight. They did not pick up weapons. Uh, but they did everything in their power short of that to aid the Union cause.
0: Well, Glenn, we have taken up uh, about an hour of your life, which you will never get back. Uh, <laughs> so just to wrap us up here, why don't you you know, tell everybody uh, what's next for you?
1: Well, I have two projects um, I'm working on. One is a dual biography of Samuel Janney and Benjamin Hollowell. Um, they are friends, cohorts. They are born within four years of each other they die within two years of each other they collaborate throughout their careers and i think that friendship um, is absolutely essential to their sustaining their anti-slavery and various reform efforts over the course of their career it's also spiritual support Um, uh, most interestingly in the wake of the civil war they abandon their efforts to help african americans are largely abandoned Uh, aside from rhetorically, and they embrace in their 70s the traditional Quaker concern with Native Americans. And in their 70s, Benjamin Hollowell essentially becomes a uh, federal bureaucrat under U.S. Grant's Indian peace policy, and Samuel Janney moves out to Nebraska as an Indian agent uh, working with the Osage Indians uh, uh, in an attempt to uh, uh, speed their shift uh, speed there in his language he would have used civilization Uh, right (laughs) uh uh, but this is really kind of interesting u.s grant uh embraces uh largely at the influence i think of one of his um secretaries who was a uh native american trained in quaker schools in upstate new york um uh quaker policies instead of adopting a violent policy towards indians he tries to adopt a uh, quaker uh peaceful uh uh uh, tactics um, not successfully um, and cer- certainly abandoned as soon as uh, grant leaves office but I, I, I this kind of shift from this focus on anti-slavery even while reconstructed uh, to aid uh, native americans even while uh, reconstruction is happening and failing uh, i find interesting and so it raises the question of how these folks chose their spiritual and ethical commitments and what was lost in choosing one commitment over another So that's the first project. The second project is a broader work on religion in the Civil War, um, uh, entitled With God on Our Side. And it looks at um, uh, how both sides believed they were fighting the good fight, had God on their side. Um, But ironically, uh, when the war ends, um, the Union abandons that sort of religious certitude, and we get the rise of liberal Christianity. Um, and the South, in contrast, despite losing, uh, is confirmed in its belief that it was fighting uh, a religious fight. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a, a, a broad survey. It's not an attempt to uh, deal with this in the way that, say, George Rabel did in his recent book. Um, mm-hmm. But I think to sketch out the, the, the sort of broader parameters of what religion meant to both sides and to African-Americans during the American Civil War.
0: Well, they both sound awesome. Well, Glenn, thanks so much for talking to us today.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Dan. It's a pleasure.
0: Uh, We've been talking with Glenn Crothers about his book, Quakers Living in the Lion's Mouth, The Society of Friends in Northern Virginia, 1730 to 1865. This is Dan Kilbride from New Books in American Studies. Uh, We find books on American Studies, uh, and sometimes those books find us. And that can be history, literature, politics, science, music, you name it. And we talk to the authors. Thanks very much, everybody. We'll talk to you later.